This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Dear Lord, thank you that, that you can be everywhere with us, wherever we're from, that you are with us in our homes, you're with us as we gather here, that your Holy Spirit can be here present with us in this seminar and in all of the others. And we just pray that you will guide and direct each of us as we learn things that might help us to be able to better reach out to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. On some of your chairs, you might have seen a, a brochure. Some of them say total employment. Some of them say Waldensian student. We, I'm not going to talk about those much today. I will talk about those some tomorrow. But you can always go to our booth. It's number 113. Uh, this morning, I mentioned that if we contacted one person a day in the Middle East and North Africa, how long would it take to contact everybody? 450 years. If you want to see that visually illustrated, go over to our booth. They have a big bucket of black beans, and they have one white bean in the black bean bucket to represent the Adventist amidst all the others. But then they have some little bottles that show you illustrations of other countries too. So you might enjoy seeing that. And feel free to contact us or, or ask more information about those programs. The title for today's seminar, Mini Skirts, Mothers and Muslims, is not original with me. It came from an old book that's out of print now, but you can still find a few copies on Amazon, and I'll mention it again at the end. It's by a, a Christian lady who is married to a Middle Easterner who spent her entire life in the Middle East, and she has lots of illustrations about the cultural problems that we encounter in those countries as we try to reach out to people. Things that we don't even understand would cause a problem. But the same things apply to us when a Muslim moves in next door to us and we're trying to figure out how to relate to them. So I'm going to share, not just from the book, a number of different things and then at the end I'll, I'll put those books, I have two books actually that I'll recommend and I'll put them up on the screen as we get to the end. This morning I mentioned that in the Western countries, the United States, Europe, Australia, 75% of all the Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims say they don't know a single Christian personally. Not even one that they can call a friend. They might serve us in a restaurant or hotel or drive our taxi or whatever, or be a doctor in the hospital, but they don't know us as, as a friend. Why is that? Well, part of it is that we're all really busy with our day-to-day -day activities and our circle of friends, and we don't branch out of that very often. We pretty much stick with the group of friends that we're used to. Part of it is we're afraid of them, right? What if they're a terrorist, okay? We, we are all at least a little bit afraid at times. But I think the biggest part is we just don't connect. We do the same things with our Muslim neighbor, that we do with our Christian neighbor, and we connect with the Christian neighbor, but it doesn't connect with the Muslim neighbor. Why? Or we get in a taxi cab, and what works with one taxi driver doesn't seem to work with a Muslim taxi driver. Why? Why is it that we can't seem to connect? 
the, when we don't connect with people, what does that do to our witness? You know, Mrs. White says that Christ's method alone will bring true success. He mingled, he met needs, he won their confidence. If we don't connect with people, we aren't going to have a chance to really influence and, and witness to them, are we? We need to find out how to connect with people. Now, what I, what I try to share with you here in one hour is not going to make you an expert on culture. Don't go out and think you know everything about cultures. I don't. I've lived there for several years, and I still don't even begin to know all of the things. It's not going to make you an expert on Islam. But what I hope it does is to, to get your curiosity up. I hope it gets you excited about of saying, okay, they're different from me, but how are they different? What could I do to connect with them? How can we understand our coworkers and neighbors? You know, there is a clash of cultures going on between the West and the East, between Muslims and Christians, in many different cultural groups, but a huge clash of cultures today. And I want to start with one of the things that's very obvious Whenever we talk about Muslim, you almost immediately have one thought in your mind. And it's probably not this kind of picture that's here on this, this building. I, I took this picture in Turkey. I thought it was a good illustration of that clash. There's a mosque, and right next to it, a very modern picture. This, what you think of usually when you think of Muslim is something like this, right? Immediately that flashes into our minds. You know, a few years ago, I went into a restaurant in Egypt. Uh, Philip and Mindy are back with us, living in Egypt. I went into it, they took me my first trip to Egypt many years ago. They took me, somebody took me to a TJI Friday. I said, why? I'm in Egypt. I want to go to an Egyptian restaurant. Don't take me to TGI, TGI Friday. But they did. And as we walked in the door, I was shocked. Because out on the street, I saw many people like this. But as we walked in the door, there was a very, definitely an Egyptian young lady, but very Western dressed, very short, tight skirt, very, very provocatively dressed, greeting everybody as they came in the door and seating them. One of the people with me whispered, out on the street, she'd be arrested if she dressed like that. But in here, it's okay because this is a Christian business. And I was ashamed. I said, is that what people in Cairo think of when they think Christian? The, Barbara and I lived in Cyprus. And I was often ashamed. South Cyprus is Christian. North Cyprus is supposedly Muslim. It's quite a, quite a secular Islam. And for a while, there's, there's been a, a border. It was a closed border because of the war many years ago. When we first moved there, people couldn't go back and forth across it. We could go to the demilitarized zone and look across, but that was all. But gradually, they opened the border. The Muslims from the north started coming to the South Cyprus. And do you know what they saw when they came? In the Christian part of Cyprus, they saw lots of advertisements and shops selling pork. They saw lots of advertisements for alcohol. They saw, saw lots of big billboards with almost naked ladies selling cars. 
on the beaches. It's very European, and there was lots of topless bathing on the beaches. We didn't go to the beaches. We went one time and decided never again were we going. We went up in the mountains in the summer. We would go to the beaches in the winter when nobody else was there. But, but I was embarrassed for what the Muslims were seeing from the north. They came down, and this was Christian. That's what they thought of when they saw Christian. But even within Islam, folks, there's still more seats up here and scattered through. Come on in. Even within Islam, dress is very different from country to country. It's more cultural than it is religious. And I wanted to show you a few pictures that I've snapped through the years. Sometimes I've just carried my camera down by my side, you know, my little point and shoot, and been pushing the button without looking at it to see if I could catch a picture of somebody. Because it's not always, um, you can get in trouble. I have gotten in trouble for taking pictures sometimes, but sometimes it's okay. I've been learning through the years when it's okay and when I can ask permission. But these, these are some pictures of different dress. In Yemen, you will see many women dressed like this. There's a couple of little boys, and you'll see many of the men wearing the same daggers and, and cloaks. In Egypt, uh, you will often see people, some fully covered, some with the face open, some with different colors, some with all black. Very common to see both of those. Uh, here's another lady in a pantsuit, pink, in Egypt. Here's some Muslims on a little boat. Uh, tour, uh, it was more like a ferry boat in Kyrgyzstan. This is a Muslim lady living in Kyrgyzstan. You can't always tell a Muslim the way we technically, in our minds, we think of Muslim. Here was another Muslim lady in Kyrgyzstan. She did have a, a scarf on. This is a traditional uh, Kyrgyz dress. This lady is now an Adventist. She used to be a Muslim. Um, here's some from Kuwait, Turkey. In Turkey, it's almost impossible to tell who's Muslim and who's not. Some days they'll wear a scarf and some days they won't. All three of these are probably Muslim. But you won't know that. It's just that almost everybody there is. And again, Turkey. Here you've got two older ladies and a younger one. They're all, they're all Muslim, most likely, there in Turkey. Again, Turkish people dress very differently. Just thought it, I would give you a little taste for uh, their advertising, but, but they're advertising for a phone system there in Turkey. Uh, Sudan, they love the bright colors, not all just black. Gives you just a little view of, of some of the different ways that people in, different cult, in, in these different countries will dress. For many of them, wearing a headscarf is a sign of, of devotion. But others wear it as a status symbol. Some of them wear the scarf some days and not in others. Up until just a couple of years ago, it was illegal to wear a head covering in Tunisia. Now it's, it's legal to wear it, and you will see some wearing it and some not. But sometimes people will wear it one day and not wear it the next day. Uh, they have a lot of choice. In Upper Egypt, this is, a, this is a picture of one of our churches in Upper Egypt. In Upper Egypt, our Adventists 
Our, our church is divided with a wall down the middle. The women and girls sit on one side and the men sit on the other side. The speaker can see both sides, but nobody else can see each other. They come in separate doors. Our women wear head coverings in Upper Egypt. Um, this isn't commanded by the government. They don't have to do that, but they choose to because it's cultural. When our Adventist ladies come from Upper Egypt to Cairo, they feel very uncomfortable because in Cairo, men and women sit in the same side of the camp meeting tent. They don't sit on separate sides. In Cairo, many of the women, the Adventist women, Christian women, don't cover their heads. And the women from the north feel very uncomfortable. You know, in the United States, how many of you have been to that church, the Washington, New Hampshire church? Did you notice the two doors? And inside, back in our early history, the women sat on one side and the men sat on the other side. It was part of life. When you went to um, a boarding college, even, back many years ago, guys sat on one side, girls sat on the other. It was part of life. And it's been that way in the Middle East for a long time as well. Back in Mrs. White's day, most of the women wore a bonnet. At least to church, they did. Uh, even, even in Islam, veiling was a cultural practice long before Muhammad came. Long before Islam, women veiled. Uh, under the Assyrian law, the ancient Assyrians, under Assyrian law, low-class women, slaves, and prostitutes were forbidden to wear a veil or cover their hair. It was against the law unless you were a high-class woman. It was a privilege for them to be able to wear a veil or a head covering. If a lower class woman was caught wearing a veil or a head covering, she was severely beaten in public. That was way before Islam came around. In the early days of Islam, as the Muslims would conquer an area, those who would not convert were often denied the respectable public dress and were forbidden to veil. So if you'd been living in an area when Islam conquered, many times they would say, your women cannot veil if you don't convert to Islam. It was a privilege. Some of the illustrations I'm sharing with you, and the title of the program is, I mentioned to some of you at the beginning, it's from this book, Miniskirts, Mothers, and Muslims, and I'll tell you at the end how you can get that. Not everything in here is from that, but some of these are. Today, Veiling isn't always the answer to fitting in. If you were to come to our part of the world, you might wonder, okay, am I going to have to wear a scarf or a veil? Well, not always. I can tell you if you go to Saudi Arabia, yes. You're going, the women are going to have to wear a scarf. Probably not cover their face, but they're going to have to wear a scarf. If you go to some other countries, you're not going to have to. In fact, one of our workers moved to Yemen a number of years ago, 10, 12 years ago. When she moved to Yemen, she decided, she's an American woman, she decided that she was, going, she was going to be respectful for their culture. She wanted to fit in. She wanted to be able to reach out to them. So she started wearing at least the scarf. And, and when I say veil, they refer to the veil sometimes meaning what covers your face, but many times meaning the whole covering from head to toe. Sometimes they'll talk about an abaya. Um, there's, there's a number of different terms. But veil doesn't always mean just what covers your face. 
So she decided that she was going to, to wear the head covering at least and the robe. And she thought that that would be a help, that it would f help her fit in. But instead, she learned that it made her, her Muslim neighbors very, very angry. Because you see, at first, they thought they could see her blue eyes, they could see her light-colored skin, and they knew she wasn't Yemeni. They thought she must be a convert to Islam. And when they found out that she wasn't, then they were angry. They said, you're being deceptive. You're trying to trick us. So for her to fit in in Yemen, what she had to do was to dress modestly. She wore a long tunic, but not the full robe. She, she would sometimes wear a little covering on the back of her hair, but she didn't wear the scarf or the veil. Then they knew immediately that she wasn't Muslim, but they could tell that she was trying to respect their culture. And that made them feel very good. So we, we, have, to, we have to ask questions. You know, you'll go to some countries, like Saudi Arabia, where women are not allowed to drive, where they have to wear the head covering, uh, where in some countries, uh, women just now, in the last month, have been allowed to hold some public offices in Saudi Arabia. But you'll go to other countries where many women hold high public offices. You'll go to countries where women are allowed to drive freely, where they don't have to wear the head covering. And, and so we have huge varieties there. Um, if, if you're coming to our part of the world or if a Muslim moves in next door to you, you're going to have to pray a lot. Watch what they do and ask questions. You know, ask them, and this is one way you could approach it. If you're getting to know your neighbor and you ask them what would offend them, they might not re reply openly to you. They, they don't want to hurt you, and I'll come to that in a few minutes. You might say to your neighbor, you know, how should I dress? You've invited me over to your house to eat, and you're, you're inviting some other people. How should I dress so I don't offend your guests? That way you're not saying, how do I dress so I don't offend you? You're saying, how do I dress so I don't offend your guests? And they can answer you, and they will feel so appreciative that you like them enough that you want to not offend their guests. And, and so, so that might be appropriate way to find out. Uh, there's another book that I'm going to show to you at the end. It's called Foreign to Familiar. And, and I wanted to tell you, read to you, a part of a story that she uses to start out that book. I'll just give you the introduction of it first and then read you a, a few paragraphs. She and two friends were on a flight from Atlanta to New Mexico. Okay, it's U.S. flight, Atlanta to New Mexico. They were going for a conference. They all worked together. She had an American friend and she had a Lebanese friend sitting next to her in the airplane. Okay? So this, this lady has grown up in the Middle East. She lived in Israel. She lived in many of the countries there. And, and so on one side of her, she's got a, a lady who only lived in America. On the other side, she's got a Lebanese who has moved to America. The American turns to her and says, Sarah, what was it like growing up in Israel? What was the culture like? And Sarah thought, well, maybe she's just trying to make conversation and doesn't really mean it. And, and she noticed that Ada, her Lebanese friend, immediately turned away and started staring out the airplane window. So she knew that Ada was uncomfortable with this discussion. But Sarah, the, the friend kept pressing Sarah, 
And finally, Sarah took a deep breath, and here I'm quoting now. She said, well, I grew up in a variety of cultures. The Jewish and Arab cultures are vastly different. And the lady, the American lady next to her said, how so? Well, in Jewish culture, you say what you think. It's direct, and you know where you stand with people. I glanced, she says, I glanced at her to see if she was still with me. She was, so I continued. The Arab culture, on the other hand, is much more indirect. It's all about friendship. I'll come back to that other one in a few minutes. Oh, no, I do want that one to be up there as an illustration. She said, it's all about friendship and politeness. If I was offered a cup of coffee, I, and remember, this isn't me, this is not an Adventist writer, okay, but she says, if I was offered a cup of coffee in the Arab culture, I would say, no, thank you. The host would offer it to me again, and I would decline again with something like, no, no, don't bother yourself. They might offer a third time, and I'd reply, no, no, I, I really don't want any coffee. Believe me, I don't want any. And the host... Would, would go ahead then and pour the coffee and serve it to her, and she would drink it. <laughs> well, her, her American friend said to her, Well, Sarah, then what if you really don't want the coffee? What do you do? Oh, she said, there are idioms that you can use to say that you wouldn't for any reason refuse their hospitality, and at some point in the future you would gladly join them in drinking something, but at the moment you really can't drink it. Now the Lebanese friend turned away from the window where she had been staring uncomfortably out the window and she was very interested in the discussion. She said, this is incredible. I didn't know that. And, and both Sarah and her other friend turned to Ada, the Lebanese, and said, what do you mean you didn't know that? Ada said, what uh, Ada said, uh, yes, I've lived in America for a long time and I'm Lebanese, but I mean, I didn't know that what you just described wasn't normal. I've been in the United States eight years and I did not realize it was done differently here. That explains so much. I've been so lonely since moving here and now I know why. When people in the office asked me if I wanted to go to lunch, I would politely say no fully expecting them to ask me again. But they didn't. And they left without me, and so I decided they must not really want me to go along. She said, in my culture, it would have been too forward to say yes the first time. Because of this, I've had very few friends in America after all these years, and now I finally know why. You know, maybe some of you can identify with Ada's Lebanese culture. You know, how many of you, how many of you would have reacted like Ada's workmates? If a Muslim moves, okay, I, I tricked you, I'm sorry. I know some of you would have reacted like Ada, but think about a Muslim who comes into your workplace, and she's there or he's there with you and mixing. If you asked him if he wanted to go to lunch with you and he said no, what would you do? Most of you would say, okay, and you'd go to lunch without him, right? You wouldn't stop to invite him again. Can you see how that simple cultural difference can affect your witness to a Muslim co-worker or a neighbor? If you can't become close, trusted friends, then the opportunity for witness will be minimal at best. Some of you may know Eric Baumgartner teaches at Andrews University. 
When Eric first came to the United States as a young man many, many, many years ago, he says he almost starved to death his first few months in the United States. He was poor, he was young, he was an immigrant student. Sometimes he would go to a friend's house hoping that the family would have something to eat and share it with him. They would offer him something to eat and starving to death, he would say politely, oh no thank you, I'm fine. And they would put it back in the fridge and not offer him anything more. And he said for, two, for a couple of months he almost starved to death till he realized that in America we don't say no if we really mean yes. Okay, but, but in those cultures, many times you say no to be polite, you say no several times. Now, the issue of food and drink is a hard one. It's, it's one of the hardest ones for me to deal with. I don't have good answers myself at this point. You can talk to others and you'll find many different answers. But I want you to be aware of the problem and I want you to be earnestly praying for how do I reach out to my Muslim neighbor or if I go to work in one of those countries, what am I going to do? How do I reach out when they offer me something to eat or drink? If you're invited to a home or business of your new Muslim neighbor, let's say they moved in next door and, and you've befriended them across the fence and they invite you to your house, their house, they almost certainly will offer you something to drink and eat. And absolutely, for certain, without question, you will offend them if you don't drink and eat it. No exceptions. You will offend them. So how do you deal with that? How do you say, well, I just ate? That's kind of an easy one. If you just ate and you feel like you have to, you can eat again. But, but what do you do if you aren't sure what's in the food or if you're a vegetarian or if they're offering you a really strong Turkish tea or, or something else? What do you do? You will offend them if you don't take it. You know, I, I've tried a variety of things in many different situations and I can't say that any of them have worked exceptionally well. Um, at least not to my human eyes. Maybe someday God will show me that something has worked. I know that I have deeply hurt people that I very much was wanting to reach out to. You know, sometimes I've just asked for a cup of hot water. I've said, oh, thank you. You know, could I have a cup of, of hot water? And occasionally that's worked but sometimes it hasn't. They, why do you want just hot water? I'm giving you this wonderful Turkish tea or, or whatever it happens to be. Tea everywhere in the Middle East. Uh, sometimes I've taken the cup and just pretended to sip a little bit and set it down and kept talking, but they noticed I hadn't drink, drunk it. I was up in far eastern Turkey, up near Mount Ararat, and, and visiting with a man who's a new Adventist, he was a Muslim, he's now an Adventist. His family is not. He understood, but his wife was deeply offended that the cup sat there and didn't get drunk. And she asked him, and later someone else in the group who understood what sh her language translated for me and told me later that she had asked him with tears in her eyes, what's wrong with the tea? Why aren't they drinking it? Okay, I, I don't know the right answer. Uh, you know, of course, if the best thing is if I have a chance to tell them ahead of time. Especially, and I'll talk more about this later, if I can tell them through a third person. 
If I can say to a mutual friend, you know, I'm getting ready to go to their house, would you tell them for me that, that I don't drink caffeinated drinks or that I'm a vegetarian? That works much better than if I go directly to them. They would go and they would say, you know, your new friend that you've invited over, did you know that they're a vegetarian and they, you know, they aren't going to want whatever it is that you're serving? Uh, sometimes I will tell them ahead of time that, that I don't eat shellfish because Muslims don't eat pork, but they don't know about the rest of the unclean meats like we do, so they eat a lot of shellfish, they eat camel. Um, they definitely drink a lot of tea and coffee and those things. Sometimes what seems to work, it's not always possible, but sometimes you can invite them first. If you're getting to know a neighbor or a coworker, invite them to your house before they have a chance to invite you to theirs. Then you can say to them when they come, you can apologize profusely and say, you know, I hope you won't be offended. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have any real tea. I've just got some herbal tea, you know. I don't, I don't drink real tea because it bothers my stomach and it's not really that, you know. And, or you can tell them, I'm sorry, I don't have any meat. What I've got is just vegetarian. And they will be watching and listening. They won't be offended that you don't have it, but you're presenting it as though you hope they won't be offended. And then when they invite you, you can know that they will have heard you and they will be very careful about what they're serving you. But it's those impromptu ones, those first impressions, that seem to get me in trouble. Uh, another point about food. When your new Muslim neighbor moves in next door, their house or apartment will probably look just about like yours. They may have a car in the driveway and they probably will always be nicely dressed. And so you won't realize the financial challenge that they may be having at home. When they invite you over for a meal, after you've had some time of getting to know each other, you, you may not realize how poor they are, and they may have scrounged all the money they have left for the month to buy enough food to give you a huge spread on the table. And you look at all that, and Middle Eastern food is wonderful. And Middle Easterners always will press you to eat more, more. Please, what am I going to do with the rest of it? I mean, look at this huge pile. But you may not, and that's their culture, they will be honestly, sincerely seeming to pressure, pressure you to eat more, but you may not realize that the wife and the children aren't eating, partly because it's cultural and partly because they want to make sure there's enough food for you. And when you're finished, if you've given in and eaten every time they keep saying, oh, here, have some more, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat, way more than you should have, and you've enjoyed it, but you're thinking, oh, my, I've got to go walk now, you may not realize that, that they may not have anything to eat for the next day or two until they get some more money because they have gone out to give you everything that they could give you. And the food will be wonderful. In those situations, it's often best just to eat small amounts and make sure that you leave a major portion of what's there, even if they're pressuring you. Just remember, that's the polite thing for them to do, to pressure you to eat more. It's okay for you to refuse after you've eaten some. You can always refuse to eat more. It's, it's, it hurts them if you, don't, if you refuse to take any the first time. But after you've eaten some, then if you don't take more, that's okay. I've often been to somebody's home suddenly where they didn't expect me to come, and I've seen an adult whisper to a child, and the child slips out the back door, and a few minutes later 
comes in with a bag from the grocery store with some crackers and some soda or something, and I know right away what's happened. They didn't have any food in the house that they felt they could feed to a foreigner, and they may not have even had any money to get any, and the child probably stopped at an uncle or auntie's house on the way to the store and borrowed some money to go to the store and buy this to bring and serve to me. And so then if I say no, how are they going to feel? It's really a hard situation to be in. But it also reminds me of a situation that Jesus used as a parable. You remember the parable of, of the friend that goes to his neighbor to borrow bread in the middle of the night? He didn't have anything, so what did he do? He went to somebody to borrow it. That's very much part of the culture. They wouldn't hesitate to go to an uncle or an aunt or a neighbor and borrow something. You know, personalities in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, the Turkish world. I say Muslim world usually because it includes so much more than just Arabic. But personalities are different between individuals just like they are in America and all of our countries. So we have to be careful about making strong generalizations. Anything that I say here today will be different from one family to another family. You've got to pray for the Holy Spirit to guide you. You've got to talk to people and watch and, and do the best you can, but God's going to have to guide you to do, to, to do the right thing. But there are some generalizations that might be able to help us a little bit as we look at different cultures. One of those is described as hot climate or cold climate cultures. Some of you have heard that term before. That doesn't totally have to do with the actual temperature of the country, but it does sort of follow those lines. Those from hot climate cultures are usually relationship-oriented. Those from cold climate cultures are usually task-oriented. What are most of us? Well, we're some relational, but many of us are quite task-oriented, especially when we go to compare ourselves with another culture and we get into their country and realize how much different we are. In America, the southern part of the United States is much more relationship-oriented than the northern part of the United States as a whole. Right? Again, you can't use a generalization completely. And if you go to Alaska, Alaska's quite cold, but it's much more relationship-oriented, much more like the hot climate cultures. So there are some differences there. In hot climate cultures, people often expect you to come over without being invited. Okay, that's hard for me. I can remember going a couple of years and wondering why nobody had invited me to come over. They went those couple of years wondering, why doesn't he ever come over? Okay, we're used to inviting somebody. We set up a time, we, you know, we, we plan it, but they are used to just showing up. What that means is that you're waiting for an invitation because you don't want to embarrass them, and they're wondering why you're not coming. You must not like them because you're not coming over to see them. But, you know, our question always is then, what if it's not a convenient time for them? What if I show up at their door and it's just not a good time? Well, don't worry about that. In, their, in those relationship-oriented cultures, they will never give up time with people in order to satisfy their own personal feelings and desires. They won't be upset if you just show up. The hard part will come. Okay, Let's say a Muslim neighbor moved in next to you. 
The hard part is not that. You can make yourself just show up at their door sometime. See what happens. The hard part will come when they show up at your door. <laughs> and it wasn't a convenient time for you. You know, you were just getting ready to do this, 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 and this, and, and then you were going to run here and there, and, and they show up at the door. I can tell you that if you stand at the door and smile and make small talk for a minute or two and then say, thank you, we'll have to get together sometime and shut the door, you will probably never see them again. They will think that you are so crude, so, so uncourteous that you don't like them at all and they'll probably never give you an invitation and never come over. Uh, quoting from one of these books here, uh, Foreign to Familiar, it says, one of the shocks a foreigner encounters the moment he arrives in some cold climate cultures is that he needs money to survive. Okay? We're a cold climate culture. Think of a refugee coming from Syria or somewhere else coming here to America. One of the things that shocks them is that they need money to survive. Even the carts in the airport cost money. Okay, over our way, they don't. They're all free. The carts in the airport, you take them. We come here to America, the, the luggage carts, you know, unless you're in the international terminal, everything is, costs money. Many travelers from hot climate cultures, if they have limited funds, have saved, sacrificed, received gifts from family and friends, and bought their airplane tickets. Once they're on the plane, they assume that they are now guests. Food is provided to them on the airplane, and that reinforces their feeling that they will be cared for in their host country. But when they land, nobody's there to care for them. Okay, that goes even further. Let's, let's think about the one that arrives in your neighbor, neighborhood. Somebody moves in next door to you. Are you planning to take care of them when they move in? You know, if you offer to take them to the mall, do you realize that you're also offering to feed them when you take them to the mall? Let's say you invite them to go out to eat with you. You say, let's, let's all go to the mall to eat. And they say, yeah, sure, let's go. Maybe your coworker at work. And you say, you say, let's go. And they say, sure, let's go. Did you know that in their mind, you've committed yourself to pay for their meal? They aren't planning to. They might not even have any money. If they invite you, they would do the same thing. They would plan to pay for your meal. Oh, no, you can't pay for it. They invited you. They think they need to. So be careful. If a coworker comes to work with you, he may be dressed nicely. You may, he may drive a car. You may think everything is fine, but he may have borrowed and scraped every last dollar that he could find, and he may not have the money to buy something at Taco Bell at the mall. And when you go and buy something to eat, and then he stands there wondering what to do because he doesn't have any money to pay for it, and now he's horribly embarrassed. So if you invite somebody... Be prepared to pay for it as well. Maybe your welcome basket should include not just uh, some fruit and a, and a book or something, but maybe you ought to put a little envelope with $25 or something in there. It might be a real blessing to a family who has suddenly realized they didn't know they had to have a shovel to shovel snow. They never thought about having snow in Michigan where they just moved, and, and now they don't have any money to buy a shovel, and what are they going to do? Or, or maybe you've noticed that your Middle Eastern neighbor, his lawn seems to look a terrible mess all the time. 
Maybe it's not because he's uncultured and uncivilized. Maybe it's because growing up in a part of the world where you only have lawns if you water everything, maybe he doesn't know that he's going to have to buy a lawnmower and mow lawn when he gets there, and now he doesn't have any money to buy a lawnmower, and so he's embarrassed because everything looks so shabby, but, but he doesn't know what to do about it. Maybe he needs someone to come and offer to help him find a lawnmower and then pay for it. Uh, I want to share with you two incidents from this book, Miniskirts, Mothers, and Muslims. Christine Maluhi shares two incidents that relate how this principle works a little differently. Um, oh, let me back up first. I missed one thing. If, if, you have, if somebody has come to your house and you've been polite and you've invited them in and they've stayed for an hour or two and you've tried not to keep looking at your watch, when they leave, you better say the right thing or they're going to feel hurt. What you probably need to say, even if they've been there two hours and you've been thinking of the whole list of things you've got to do, but you've been trying to be pleasant, you've been making your, your cold climate culture go down, and you've been saying, look, I'm just going to be with the people and enjoy them. But when they leave, you better say to them, um, this visit didn't count as a, as a real visit. We didn't have time to enjoy each other's company enough. You really need to come back again when we can spend longer together. Okay, it's been two hours, you're frantic, but you still better say to them, this wasn't a real visit. I mean, it was so short. You, you mean you have to go now? I, I, come back again when we can really spend good time together. Uh, let me share with you two incidents uh, from that Christine and her husband experienced. Remember, she was an American lady. She married um, an Arab man, and they lived in many different Arab countries. She said, in Cairo, we invited a family to dinner, and they didn't come. The next time we saw them, my husband made a great fuss about how much we had worked to cook and prepare and how put out we were that they hadn't shown up. I mean, he just went on and on. I was aghast, thinking that he was making them feel very guilty. I tried to remedy this by telling them, oh, it wasn't such a big deal that they hadn't come. Meanwhile, he was kicking me under the table and loudly talking over my explanations. <laughs> later, he confronted me, uh, later I confronted him with exaggerating. He said, no, no, Christine, I was honoring them by making them feel that we had made a big effort and were disappointed that they hadn't come. My ex Christine's explanations that it didn't matter were dishonoring them by implying that it really hadn't been a big deal. So the same thing happened reverse in America. American family got upset when her husband started going on and on about how terrible they were for not showing up when he had invited them. They, he, they thought he was embarrassing them and she had to intervene and explain that it was his culture, and he was trying to honor them by telling them how much we had wanted them to come. So it can be quite different in different places. Can you see how this cultural thing can really cause complications in your attempt to witness, even to a neighbor who's moved into your community? They're thinking one thing, and you're thinking something totally different. You know, 
in most Arab cultures, it's polite to refuse anything and everything the first time. I mentioned that before in the story. But Arab culture revolves around gift giving and receiving gifts and favors. Now, sometimes this comes very close to being hard to tell the difference between bribery and gift giving, okay? I, I, we, it's an issue we deal with all the time in our office. I'm not talking about the bribery end of things, trying to get somebody to do something for you. But gift giving is a part of their culture. There are mental bank accounts that go back generations, not just the last few days, that go back generations. If somebody in the Middle East needs something done, they wouldn't hesitate to go to someone that their grandfather had befriended and ask them to repay the favor. That bank account is there. When you, when you go to someone's house, you should always take a gift. I forget that all the time. But when I'm with Middle Eastern friends, they always will stop and take a gift when they go to somebody's house. I was with one man in northern Iraq. He said, oh, we, we're going to see these two families. Just a minute, we've got to stop at the fruit stand. And he bought three big watermelons so that he could take a watermelon to each of them as he went. Always need to take a gift. And if they give you a gift, don't return the dish empty. Uh, one, one young couple had moved into a building and the people above them were trying to befriend them, their Middle Eastern neighbors, and they were giving them lots and lots of, of Iranian food and they kept sending the dish back up empty and wondered why the relationship wasn't growing. <laughs> if you send back the dish, make sure you put some candy or fruit or a scarf or something in it when you give it back to them. And remember that when you receive a gift from them, you are indebted to them. They can come then and ask you for help with something else in the future. Uh, your family is indebted to them forever if you've taken a gift from them. And, and the same when you give them a gift. They feel indebted to you and they'll want to do something to help. And, and they just keep track of those, those mental bank accounts. Be really careful in an Arab home about admiring something. If, if you say, oh my, what a beautiful picture or what a beautiful scarf or whatever, they will almost certainly give it to you. And you will have a hard time refusing it. You have to be careful because that's their culture. If you admire it, they're going to want to give it to you. And be careful what kinds of gifts you're giving. Oh my, we so much need the Holy Spirit to guide us in these encounters because we just don't know what to do. You know, it would be ideal if I could say that we, that we could fill the Middle East and North Africa with Adventist Middle Easterners and North Africans who understand the culture and the language, but we can't, so we bring in foreigners. Or you have a foreigner move in next to you, and we have to have the Holy Spirit guide us because we don't know what to do. I can tell you, though, don't be too worried. If you love somebody, that love shows through, and they will forgive the mistakes that you made. So don't be so terribly paranoid. I'm just trying to give you a few hints, mainly, I'm trying to help you catch an interest in learning about their culture. If there's a Middle Eastern restaurant down the road, I want you to find out what country they come from. It may be Jordan, it may be Pakistan, it may be somewhere else. And then start learning about it. Ask them about some things. Talk to them about some things that are happening. I want you to get an interest 
in their culture. Um, let's see. This, okay, the, back to the issue of gift giving. Be careful of the gift you give. It might have meaning to you, but it might be offensive to them. And that's a difficult one. There was a Tunisian girl, a Tunisian boy that married a German girl. Okay, quite different cultures. She was given a very expensive family heirloom as a gift when, when they had the wedding in Tunisia. Then they moved back to Germany. They began their life there. This was a number of years ago. The Berlin Wall fell while they were back in Germany. And to her, that was such a powerful symbol of what life had been for her growing up that she was thrilled to be able to get a few pieces of the Berlin Wall and send them to some different family members as gifts. She sent one to her father-in-law in Tunisia. To her, this was a priceless piece of history, but when he received it, he was so angry he had a heart attack and died. Because to him, a piece of rock was like what you throw at the devil when you go on Hajj in Mecca. It was a horrid thing to receive as a gift, and it caused him to have the heart attack and die. So make sure your gifts have value in their eyes, not just in yours. Now, this next one might be hard for some of you to grasp, and for others of you, you will think it's just normal, but, but in most of the Arab world, Christian or Muslim, words, okay, we're very careful about words, aren't we? But in most of the Arab world, words are to help create an atmosphere, not necessarily to convey a detailed and accurate message. Words are to help create an atmosphere, not necessarily to create a detailed and accurate message. Okay, let's use some illustrations. If you asked your friend in Holland about your new haircut, the answer in Holland that you might get could be, well, it makes your face look fat. And if you responded to them and said, well, that hurts my feelings, the person would answer, what do feelings have to do with it? You ask my opinion. This isn't about you, it's about your hair. Can you see what might happen if a person who lives in Holland has a Syrian refugee, or a person from Holland in the United States has a Syrian refugee move in next to them? Their short, seemingly curt answers would deeply hurt and offend that Syrian refugee. They wouldn't mean to, but, but the two cultures are not mixing at all. I'll never forget an experience I had in Cyprus. Nabil was an older gentleman. He's Egyptian, Nabil Mansour. I don't know if you've met him or not, but you know Nahren. It's Nahren from the Heliopolis Church, um, her husband. He was, he was uh, Egyptian. She was Iraqi. He was our translator. He did all our, our translating into Arabic. An extremely dedicated, loving Adventist man extremely conservative. He was on the ultra-conservative side of, of everything. He was so careful about everything that he did and said, not just in his translating. But one day I came into the office and he was furious. His brother-in-law had just called his wife from Iraq and said to her, Nahren, our father just died. 
and Nabil was furious at him. I, I was shocked as he went on and on and on, and I finally said to him, Nabil, what else could he do? He couldn't come here to tell her. What could he do but call her and tell her that her father had died? And, and Nabil turned to me and he said, well, 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 he should have called today and said that her father is sick. Then he should have called tomorrow and said he's getting worse. And then he should have called the next day and said he died. And I said, but Nabil, that wouldn't be honest. And with huge, puzzled eyes, Nabil, this extremely conservative, dedicated Adventist, said to me, honest? This doesn't have anything to do with being honest. This is about being kind, merciful. I, you know, I, shared, I didn't understand it, but I've shared it with a number of my other Middle Eastern friends, and without exception, every single one of them has said the same thing. They've said, yes, Nabil is right. In their minds, if it wasn't possible to be both kind and honest, then it was more important to be kind. They aren't talking about being dishonest in their minds. They're talking about delaying telling the truth. Give them some time to process it, their feeling. Uh, they would tell her eventually. They just don't like the idea of telling her bluntly and right away. Well, that's a challenge for us, isn't it? We relate to things differently than they do. And if your Muslim neighbor and you are having a discussion, those concepts are going to create a clash at times. Uh, another illustration. In Indonesia or in Lebanon, I, I've seen the same thing happen in Lebanon. Let's see, I saw Chen Min in here a few minutes ago. I don't know if he's still here. Um, Brian is here, right? Brian, where were you? Yep. Brian Manley is over at our booth. In fact, stand up, Brian. Sorry to embarrass you. Brian is our coordinator for tent makers and Waldensian students and Beyond Walls and a number of other things that we have. He's over at the booth. He lives there in Lebanon. He's from Michigan. And I don't know if you're from Michigan. I don't know where you're from, but you grew up in Kenya, right? So who knows where you're from. But anyway, in Lebanon and in Indonesia, this picture's from Indonesia, if you, ask, if you ask somebody in the community if you can have a ride with them to town, they might answer something like this. Oh, I'd love to give you a ride. I'm just not sure how much space we'll have yet, but maybe we can squeeze you in. Okay, their communication is very indirect, usually. They aren't just trying to keep good feelings. They're also wanting to make sure that they don't impose their will on you. They want to make sure they treat you warmly and friendly. And so they don't want to say no. But if they answered that to you, if they said, you know, maybe we can squeeze you in, what did they really say? Did they say yes or no? In those cultures, they said no. To us, we might show up a few minutes later thinking they might be able to squeeze us in. But they knew that, they are, that their little car or motorcycle or whatever it happened to be was already overmaxed and there was no additional room. They just couldn't bear to say no to you. So they said, maybe we could squeeze you in. You know, in most of our countries in, the, in MENA, if you ask somebody a direct question, you will almost always get a yes answer. 
If you say something direct to them, ask them. For instance, if you try to get directions to the post office in Turkey, I don't know, Brian, Mindy, Philip, any of you, if you've done this or not, but in Turkey, if you try to get directions to the post office, you will always get detailed instructions. And you may happily follow those instructions only to find out there is no post office where they were sending you. Now, it isn't that they were trying to mislead you or mistreat you. It's just they couldn't bear to say, I don't know, to a foreigner. So they gave you directions to some place and hoped that somebody there could direct you to the post office. Um, let's see. Okay, let, let me give you another one, another illustration. If you want to know if your roommate, okay, some of you might be a Waldensian student, and you want to know if your roommate is bothered by your music. You can't just say to them, is my music bothering you? They will always say, no, no, no. That doesn't mean that it's not bothering them. That's just what they're going to say. If you ask a Middle Eastern neighbor if it's okay if you part, okay, so a Middle Easterner moves into your community, and you're getting ready to hose down your driveway and clean it off, and you see that he has some room. If you ask him if you can move your car over to his driveway, what will he respond? He will respond, sure, even if he knows that in 10 minutes he's got five carloads of people coming to see him, and he doesn't know where he's going to put them. He can't bear to say no to you. Let me see. I knew I was going to run out of time. We're supposed to quit at 2.45, right? That's three more minutes, and I'm not going to get through it all. Let me ask you, I know that we have another topic scheduled for next session. Would you be okay if I started this again at 3 o'clock and continued on with it and then just summarized the other topic? Okay. I think we better stop here and take a break, and at 3 o'clock, we'll start again. In fact, if you... Now, let's, let's do it 3 o'clock, like it's scheduled. Come back at 3 o'clock, and we'll continue on with a few more illustrations before we go to the next sec section. Thank you. Let's have a prayer before you go. Dear Lord, thank you that you are always there. Your Holy Spirit is guiding us and helping us. We want to be able to connect with the people around us, but there's so much we don't know. And what we say might hurt them even though we don't mean for it to. Please help us to do and say the right thing. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.